Good morning. I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12. And today we're going to be picking up at verse 43. So why don't you thumb your way there, and once you've got it, then let's stand as we read God's Word together. Matthew 12, 43 to 50, and these are the holy words of God. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And may God bless the reading of his word. So if you look over at the last page, or I don't know where it will be on your Bible, but at verse 22, you'll recall that Jesus healed a blind and a mute man who happened to be blind and mute because he was demon-possessed. And one of the themes of Jesus' miracles is that they often serve as parables about the spiritual state of affairs. So Jesus' miracles aren't just tricks. They're also statements about reality overall. In that miracle, Christ is showing that if he touches someone, they are truly healed. Christ has cast out this man's demon, and this means that the man is able to speak and to see. And interestingly, then Christ goes on to speak to the Pharisees about how our speech is an overflow that gives evidence of what's in our heart. And he sharply condemns the Pharisees for not seeing him for who he truly is. See how this works? A miracle happens about sight and about speech, and then Jesus gives a sermon about sight and speech. Okay, so these miracles aren't just party tricks. They're a statement about the people overall. They're prophetic in and of themselves. So this is not a miracle of mere biological facts, but of redemptive meaning. And the reason that the Pharisees are blind and mute to the things of God is because they have not been touched by Christ. So they remain loyal sons of their father, the devil. One thing that we're able to see in that miracle is that if Christ heals someone, they're actually healed. And this is a common theme. If Christ heals someone, they're actually healed all the way. And so if his spiritual condition has been addressed, which it has in that case, then a visible state of affairs comes about. And that kind of effective change in outcome in verse 22 is now contrasted with something similar but different in verses 43 and on. In verse 43 it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. So what we have in this case is not an exorcism or a casting out of of an unclean spirit by Christ, but rather a voluntary leaving of the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit just leaves on its own accord. It's not cast out. It's not under the power of Christ. It just does it on its own. And when Christ casts out an evil spirit, it must stay away. But this evil spirit is just taking a break. He's just going on a holiday. He's seeking rest, but he does not give up ownership of the person in whom he started. He takes the key to this man's heart 
whoever this is, uh, with him. <clears throat> and he is uh, therefore retaining the right to return also at his own pleasure. And after leaving, it says he goes to the waterless places. What's that? What does it mean that the Spirit goes to the waterless places? Water, in a very literal, kind of biological sense, is a life-giving substance. And there's no greenery, and there's no life, and no fruitfulness apart from water. And in a symbolic sense, the blessings from God's Spirit are often spoken of in terms of water, right? We've got streams of living water, we've got washing of water, we've got baptism symbolism and so forth. And so, water is a picture of a blessing of God. So to go to a waterless place is to go to those places that are devoid of God's blessing. To go where there is no rainfall, there's no abundance, there's no fruitfulness, there's no life. It's just a desert of death. A parched, dry place, completely away from the blessing of God. And as is always the case, whether in the spiritual realm or in your life, to go to the waterless places, to try to find rest or to try to find joy or meaning apart from Jesus Christ, you will not find it. It will not happen. And the Spirit finds that out for Himself. He goes away, but He does not find any rest. He cannot. And the fact that the Spirit is out in the desert places is perhaps reminiscent even of what we've read earlier in this Gospel of the fact that where did Jesus go to be tempted by Satan? It was out in the desert out in the waterless places where Satan is at work. So instead of the blessing of fellowship with God in a garden, we, we started a garden scene, it's lush, it's green, there's water. Now we have a picture of the isolation and the emptiness that comes from an unclean spirit out in the desert, out in the waterless places. He cannot find peace, he will not find peace, and friends, neither will you, apart from Christ. You will not find peace. Augustine said that our hearts were made for God and they will remain restless until we find our peace in Him. And he's right. There is no rest. There is no peace. There is no joy in the darkness. Verse 44 goes on and says, Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also it will be with this evil generation. So because this unclean spirit was not cast out by Christ, but left on its own decision, it has the freedom to return on its own terms as well. But now when he returns, he finds the old place, the old stomping grounds are looking kind of orderly, at least on the surface. The house is swept up in an order, which looks like an improvement to the havoc that he no doubt left, but the problem is that the house is empty. And that's the key here. This house is empty. The emptiness of the house provides a great opportunity for the spirit to return. And so it returns with seven more spirits. And seven, if we work with biblical symbology and biblical meaning here, seven in the Bible is a number which communicates fullness or completeness or perfection. And so this is an indication that this house is now headed for final destruction. This demon comes back, the house is empty, there's a great opportunity for him to return, and so he brings seven more with him in a final kind of showdown. And Jesus says that this last state, so this, we're talking about an end game here with this person. Jesus says that the last state of this person is worse than it was when the Spirit was there by himself making a mess of things. 
Okay, so far so good. What does this mean? What does this all mean? And I think we want to look at this on at least two different levels. One is we always look at the contextual meaning, the kind of the redemptive historical story arc of what's happening in the Bible narrative. But then we also, as Christians, we always want to make application to ourselves. And so what's happening here in terms of the actual context, in terms of the redemptive historical story arc? Because we've been seeing a growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So we know that Israel was a nation under the Old Covenant, and if you read your Old Testaments, who's noticed that Israel kind of comes and goes in terms of her obedience, right? God thunders with his word, and they say, yes, we will fulfill all the terms of our covenant, and what are they doing 25 minutes later? Okay? They're waist-deep in idolatry. Okay? Israel is a people who comes and goes in terms of their covenant faithfulness, their covenant obedience. She's in a constant cycle of obedience and rebellion. And now in this most recent part of Israel's history, men like the Pharisees had made some external moral reforms. So on the surface, things looked better. But these moral reforms were on the surface only. And that's a repeated theme with these Pharisees. It's just window dressing. It's just surface. The root of the matter is not in them. So on the surface, things do look better, but these moral, forms, these moral reforms had no root of godliness in them at all. The moral changes that took place were performed for the public. They were a performance. They were a show. They were for self-glorification instead of for God-glorification. And this is what Jesus means when he says that the house is empty. There is a giant vacuum. And because of that, space is left for more spiritual darkness to enter and make things even worse than they were before those moral reforms happened. And Jesus connects the surface reform and the subsequent spiritual darkness to this evil generation. And so in all of these encounters with the Pharisees, there is an application that can and should and must be made to us today. But before we can make correct application, we have to understand what the text is actually saying in its own terms. So again, this is part of a growing trend in the Gospels of Jesus cursing his generation and cursing these Jewish leaders for their unbelief. And we do see, because God is kind, we do see that there are certainly a number of Jewish believers and even some converts from among the Pharisees. There are some Pharisee converts, not many, but there are some. But by and large, these people, especially their leaders, reject Christ, and their leaders have most certainly rejected him. And so by the time we get towards the end of the gospel, in one of Jesus' later sermons on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going to say that his generation will not pass away before all kinds of curses fall on them. And again, if we're doing biblical study, you'll notice that a generation in the Bible is 40 years. Jesus' ministry comes to a close in the 30s. And now we have to go outside and do some external history. There's a fascinating period of time between the Old and the New Testament, which Jerusalem gets batted around like a football between different warring empires that take claim of that land. That's in that intertestamental period that the Apocrypha speaks of. And, and this is prophesied in the book of Daniel, and it plays out perfectly in that time. And the New Testament ends in a similar way. Something rotten is about to go down in Jerusalem within a generation. By the late 60s, under Nero, the Jews are waist-deep in civil wars. They're killing each other. There's much ado. 
And by the year 70, the Roman uh, general Titus comes in with his Roman army. And amidst the civil war, and then the Romans coming in, there is such catastrophe in the city that it's even hard to read about many years later in the historical accounts. The early church historian Eusebius, who's writing in the year 311, is looking back on some of these events, what happens in Jerusalem. And he talks about cannibalism. He talks about Roman soldiers losing their appetite because they just watched a starving mother boil her baby and offer a piece of that baby to these soldiers. There's widespread famine. There's the slaughter of millions. And then there's the utter destruction of the temple and of the city, bringing this old era to an end. And the Jews after that time can no longer practice according to the old covenant system. The temple is gone. They can't offer their blood sacrifices. Catastrophe has fallen on the city. And so the generation that Jesus is preaching to does have a special and a unique place in redemptive history, especially if we understand that the decades after the closing of the New Testament aren't all that different than the closing of the Old Testament. So we have to understand the, the contextual generational language that Jesus is talking about. The removal of the temple is an end to the old Jewish religion. And it is both a fitting punishment for their unbelief And it's a fitting development as we move into the new covenant era. The training wheels come off and we are resting fully and finally now in Christ. What use are these old ceremonial laws on this side of Christ's atonement? So the fact that Jesus refers repeatedly to his evil generation does have a contextual meaning to his generation. There's very concrete, very real things that happen in objective history that you can read about. Read about the Jewish civil wars. Uh, I believe that that is the curses of Deuteronomy 28 falling on covenant breakers. Great, wonderful. Historical survey. What about us? How do we make application of that? And so the fact that there are some very significant things that happen in the history of Jesus' own hearers doesn't mean that we don't see similar patterns today. Mark Twain, as far as I know, was an unbeliever who had some great insight, so I kind of hope that Mark Twain made things right with the Lord before he died, because he would be a very interesting man to visit with in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Mark Twain once opined that uh, history does not repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. Okay? So these kinds of things that these people were guilty of, we as church people can be guilty of too at times. It's not just safely in a vault in history. We don't have the Pharisees putting their nation and their religious system in jeopardy today. We don't have that. But we do have plenty of moral reformers alive today who are just as opposed to Christ, just as vehemently as the Pharisees were. It looks good on the outside, but it is devoid of the gospel. It is devoid of life. It is devoid of water. And unbelieving people are naturally attracted to surface moralism because it makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them think that they don't have to let go of their self-righteous pride. And we see this all the time. We've talked sometimes in the past, maybe in Sunday school, about funerals. And has anyone ever heard an honest funeral eulogy? Right? Always the person who died was pretty much a, a flawless saint, right? Never lost their temper, never did anything wrong, right? We do that not to honor the dead person. We do that to deceive ourselves. That's why we tell those stories at funerals. Because if this guy here in this wooden box isn't so bad, I'm probably not so bad either. Okay? The reason we do funerals the way we do is to fool ourselves 
not to honor that dead person. Because if that dead person was in Christ, they are the last ones who say, you know, don't preach me at my funeral. My grandpa Unger was very adamant about that. Whatever you do, I know I'm dying. Don't preach Abe Unger at my funeral. Please, honor me by preaching Jesus Christ at my funeral. Okay? And in his dying days, I just remember him. He could hardly speak. And he said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He was a grateful man. Okay? He was not a surface moralist. He was gripped by the grace of God, I think especially in his dying hours. So the attraction to surface moralism is a sign of unbelief, not of belief. And in Christian circles, we do have a lot of what has been coined Christless Christianity. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's all around us. It really is. This is the Christianity that takes the shape of self-help or surface moralism instead of focusing on the glory and on the majesty of Jesus Christ and of his gospel. And this can take shape in different forms depending on kind of what things we're attracted to, right? So uh, in legalistic circles, or some maybe remember the old days of fundamentalism, this often took, form, uh, took the form of things to avoid, right? So your godliness was marked by things that you avoided. You avoided bowling alleys, you avoided pool halls, you avoided barbershop, you avoided, uh, you know, the, the old saying, we don't drink, smoke, or chew, and we don't run with boys who do, right? It was, all, it was all about what we avoid, what we avoid. And interestingly, have you ever noticed this? When we get to extra-biblical morality, morality that's not actually prescribed in the Bible, the less of a biblical case there is for something, the more adamantly people hold to it. You ever notice that? It's interesting, isn't it? The biggest sins in a lot of our minds are sins that the Bible never really says anything about. And then things that the Bible seriously condemns, then we say, well, we just got to love, just got to love, just got to love, just got to be gracious. We almost get it completely backwards at times. Why don't we treat the things that the Bible says are sin as sinful, and our man-made things may have some wisdom to them, but they're not the Bible. Okay? This is the problem with surface moralism. And kind of the fundamentalist form, or the legalistic form, looks like that. And it shows how truly man-centered we can become if we lose focus on Christ and on His glory. We tend to love our traditions and our patterns more than the ones that Scripture has laid out for us. And as is always the case, there's a ditch on the other side as well. In antinomian, or that just means anti-law, kind of careless circles, it takes the form of abusing Christian liberty. And these people, have you ever noticed how smug they are in the fact that they're not smug like the Pharisees? Right? These people are very proud of their lack of pride. Right? And, and they'll, they'll, thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me self-righteous like that Pharisee. It's the same problem. It's the same problem. It just takes a different form. So these are the people uh, who are walking the line of sin or sometimes crossing right over to it, but they think they're superior if they're walking that line because it makes them more authentic. It makes them real. They've got a backstory, right? They're being true to themselves, which in their mind makes them more spiritual. But I'm going to ask you a question for these people who love their own authenticity and their backstory. Uh, you know, pastors do this too. I always like the pastors that lived a perfectly clean life and then they got to get all tatted up to show that they're, oh, you're not authentic. <laughs> you're not a biker. You're just some guy that's trying to look tough. Okay? But who is the center of the you-do-you mentality? What's the focus of you-do-you? I'll give you a hint. The word's in there twice. 
You do you is all about you. Your fake authenticity is all about you. Okay? And even if it's real authenticity, why would you go back to the place that got you in trouble for salvation? Why would we go back deeper into ourselves? Who got you into the trouble in the first place? You did. Okay? Why would we go back in there looking for salvation when salvation is clearly outside of us? And then, of course, there's plenty of secular and humanist versions of this Christless moral reform. Okay? There's, and almost anti-virtues, almost the exact opposite of biblical virtue. For example, the trend of young people not marrying or maybe having small families or no families at all be, for the sake of climate justice. Okay? People who are too scared to have babies because of the climate emergency that we're very clearly living in on a calm day of 14 degrees. Okay? This, this mindset is unfruitful. We have these various social justice and critical race theory kind of religions that promote false virtue. Okay? You're made to feel guilty because your parents are literally white. They came from Europe. You must be a bad person. Okay? This fake guilt and fake virtue signaling, it's all around us and it's overwhelming. And I sometimes hear from people in this church who are university students and it's just everywhere. Okay? Fake guilt for fake sins and then a fake gospel. It's almost the mirror, or it's almost the photo negative of the kind of problems and solutions that the Bible presents us with. This Christless vision is directly opposed to the dominion mandate. It is, as Solomon warns in Proverbs 8.36, it's the love of death. Solomon says there that all who hate me love death. And look at the Christless moralism in our culture. It is absolutely a death wish. Don't marry. Don't have children. Don't start a business. Don't be a capitalist. Don't make money. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Don't use fossil fuels. It's fruitless. And so whether it's in the church or outside the church, whether it's of the fundamentalist variety or the antinomian variety, all systems of moral reform and moral standards that are not clearly and explicitly based in God's law and in his gospel are antichrist systems. And because they are empty of holiness, they leave people empty. They offer nothing than something to keep ourselves busy with so we can feel superior to others. And this is exactly what Jesus is warning about. It cannot satisfy. It will not give you rest. You will just be restless trying to work up more and more of a lather. And it will leave you empty. It may look virtuous at first. But if the man remains empty in his soul, the evil one will come back far more viciously than he was there at the first. And we know that Jesus' audience, the nation of Israel, should have received their Messiah and filled their house with his gospel. But they did not, which meant that their evil intensified against him until they had him murdered. And each person here today needs to be filled with Christ, or else you will find your wickedness and your hardness of heart more intense at age 80 than it is at age 20. You will continue to get more bitter, more angry. So for us as Christians, this is an important principle to understand when we think about our own sanctification. It is not enough to just drive the sin away. You have to fill that space with something else. And if we are full of the Spirit of God, sin does not have a way back in. So the best way to fight sin is to crowd it out. Okay? Has anyone ever tried controlling dandelions on their yard? I love supporting chemical companies because I love farm chemicals. But you know what the best way to take care of dandelions on your yard is? 
Yes, spray them dead. But then you know what? Fertilize your lawn. Okay? Take care of your lawn because a healthy lawn doesn't let the dandelions take over. Okay? It's not just enough to try to kill the sin. It has to be overpowered by something superior. We have to fill that space with something else. So sin needs to be crowded out with the love of superior things. The great Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers wrote a book and, and preached a series of messages about its older language, but I think you'll understand the meaning here. The expulsive power of a new affection. You push sin out by crowding it out with something better, something healthier, something more noble, something more lovely, and it crowds it out because there's no room for that spirit to come back in. And we know that. New loves must expel the old ones because a vacuum is not stable. Nature hates a vacuum, and so something will always crowd in to fill it. And so as Christians, it's our duty to make sure that what fills the empty space is a love for the glory of God. We want all of Christ for all of life. There's no place that can be untouched by the Spirit of God. We must be in Christ, and He must be in us. And so I want to encourage us, for every battle that we face with temptation, for every battle we do with sin, for every pound of effort you put into killing sin, Put in 10 pounds of effort into fanning the flames of your love for God. That's how you will really have victory over sin and over struggle. We need to fan those flames and know him more deeply through his word, spending more time talking to him in prayer, trusting his promises that he will supply your every need. We need to crowd it out. This is the way to victory over sin. Jesus goes on in verse 46. He says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this is an interesting exchange. Maybe you should ask yourself, when you read this, why were Jesus' mother and brothers standing outside asking to come speak to Christ instead of listening to him? Does that jar you when you read that text? Why were they outside asking permission to speak to him? Shouldn't they have been in the audience? Okay. As we look at this portion, I want you to look closely at verse 47. Verse 47. (laughs) Right? Who doesn't have verse 47? Ah, okay. We're not going to make this a main feature. Uh, But I'll tell you one little thing about Bible translation philosophy. There's two ways of translating from the older text. One is to go with the majority uh, of original manuscripts, which Bibles like the King James Bible do. They work with the majority text. Uh, Generally, more modern translations work with what's called the critical text, which is older but fewer in number. And so translators have to make a decision. Uh, Verse 47 is basically a repeat of what's been read. So the thinking is it was probably a footnote that someone at one point added in and got included, or it's original. I tend to think it's probably original, but whatever the case, we'll leave that there on uh, on the work of Bible translation. When you find those things, uh, there's never a contradiction. There's never a problem with biblical doctrine. There's sometimes a question over whether this is original or later. uh, And there's a legitimate discussion about translation philosophies there. But don't be upset by this. No doctrine, no teaching is affected. 
and you'll see probably if verse 47 isn't in your Bible, you'll find it in a footnote, and you'll see that it's entirely consistent with the rest of the text. But we'll leave that right there. Most commentators have suggested that the reason Jesus' family is on the outside asking to speak to him rather than on the inside listening to him teach and preach is because they are not really on board with his mission. And that seems odd, doesn't it? But the Bible does teach that. The Bible really does. Spurgeon says in his commentary, the members of his family had come to take him because they thought him beside himself. No doubt the Pharisee had so represented his ministry to his relatives that they, had, that they thought they had better restrain him, lest he should procure his own destruction by his zealous preaching. Friends may be a good man's greatest hindrance. So you see what Spurgeon is suggesting here? He's suggesting that the Pharisees, because they kind of controlled the public dialogue, had presented Jesus as this unstable radical. And I think we can immediately make application to our own time. Right? If you're the kind of Christian whose Christianity is consistent with historic Christianity, you notice how the talk that you've been radicalized, right? You're, you're probably not a trustworthy person. You've gone off the deep end, right? And especially if you happen to be about my age and approximately my gender and skin color, this is especially dangerous, okay? You are a literal threat to society for believing what Christians have always believed, Okay? This isn't a new tactic to try to poison the well or to try to cast someone's uh, integrity into question because they're pushing against the grain of the spirit of the age, as Jesus did. And I don't think Spurgeon is really just speculating here either because in John 7, verse 5, it very clearly states that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. Okay? And we know at least his brother Jude came around and even wrote, or James, pardon me, wrote a book uh, in the Bible. But during the time of Jesus' ministry, his own brothers didn't believe him. And think of how incredible that is. These are people that knew Jesus their entire lives. They were witnesses to his sinless character. They saw what he was doing. They, they listened to him preach, and they still didn't believe. It's quite a remarkable thing if you think about it. And no doubt, the conflict and the tension that's building between Jesus and the religious leaders was making his family leery. And in one sense, that's understandable, isn't it? Our son, our brother, is cutting against every religious authority in his life. Yeah, you've gone too far, Jesus. You're going <laughs> to have to dial it back. You're going to have to moderate. Right? We don't want to really be associated with this rugged preacher from the wilderness. Was he too extreme? Was he being radicalized? Should someone go talk to him? and tell them to dial it back? And don't we hear those exact same concerns today about people that hold to orthodox, historic Christianity? People seem to think that our Christianity would be most evident if we had no objections and no enemies whatsoever. If everyone loves us, that's a sure way to know that you found the biblical form of Christianity, right? And, yes, the Bible does instruct us to have a good reputation with outsiders. But Jesus also warns us in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I heard of one old church planter and evangelist who's in his dying days and telling his grandkids stories about moving across America and planting a church and stuff. Uh, and he said that he was going to die with far too good a reputation. If he could go back and do it over, he, <laughs> he wouldn't die with such a good reputation. 
and of course I don't think he meant to be a troublemaker in a negative sense, but I think he had a verse like this in mind. The absolute claims of God's sovereignty and of his law force people into an uncomfortable spot, and that's why there tends to be opposition when the gospel is preached. And by contrast, Jesus says that it is the false prophets who enjoy universal love because they never force things to a confrontation. They never force things to a head. And so the therapeutic and the experiential kind of approaches to Christianity that are so popular today are more popular because they're more palatable. They don't really confront the root issue. They just say, peace, peace, and address the surface. It's a different response than clear and confident announcement of God's law and his gospel. And again, if we look at the context here, it's amazing to me that Jesus' own family didn't really follow him. They could see everything about him, and yet they did not believe. They did not go along. And the boldness and the courage of Christ to confront the sin and the idolatry and the vanity and the pride of his own day, of his own society, would naturally have been off-putting for some. Matthew 23, Jesus says of the unbelievers in front of him, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Note this argument closely. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So again, there's the upfront, this generation application of these people rejecting all their prophets. But again, there's carryover and application for us. The thrust of Jesus' argument here is that as long as God sends people prophets, the people will reject them and mistreat them and often even kill them. But then once these men are buried safely in the ground, now they're safe, they can't do any harm anymore, now we venerate their names. Now we name synagogues after them, we name churches after them, we name seminaries after them. And I would suggest this has not changed one bit. We still wait till our courageous men are buried and safe in the ground and then we venerate them after not listening to them their whole lives. We tend to applaud the courage of past generations while mocking it and not taking it seriously in our own time because courageous men tend to be a little rugged and they don't always follow the norms and this makes people uncomfortable. But then again, once they're dead and in the ground, we venerate them as Jesus says the Pharisees were doing with the old uh, Testament prophets. And every time I pass by a united church or a liberal Presbyterian church that has the name Knox in its title, I kind of laugh under my breath. (laughs) I wonder what John Knox and his broadsword and his fierce, fiery preaching would do if he walked into that church. He would, if he was having a good day, say, please take my name off the sign, although I would imagine he would do much more than that. Okay? Imagine Luther coming to America and seeing a lesbian with a rainbow stole on her robe, offering the sacraments to God's people in a Lutheran church. 
What would he do? I was recently told that a student at Kelvin Christian School in Winnipeg was told to go home for committing a thought crime, wearing a shirt that announced the hateful sentiment that there were two genders. That school has Kelvin's name on it. What would Kelvin do if he walked into that school? We can only imagine. But see, we, we venerate these men, but we have no idea what they were about. Okay? Either get consistent or take the name off the institution because you want nothing to do with these guys. And Jesus is saying that to his audience too. You want nothing to do with Moses. You guys are opposed to Moses. Why do you pretend to be sons of Abram when you're sons of the devil? This has not changed. Why do we wait to venerate these men after they're gone and don't ever listen to them? And how many men in our own time are we not listening to? Because they are rugged. And we'll wait for 50 years for our grandkids to venerate them. Legalists and liberals alike would have told Christ to cool it if they were his friends or his family members. And I think that's what's happening. And so the fact that Christ's own family distances themselves from him was no doubt painful on one level. But he uses this as a form of deep encouragement for the rest of us who do have spiritual eyes and ears to hear him. He uses this exchange to show the priority of the Christian family, those who truly belong to him. And in this exchange, he shows that his true brothers and mother were not those from whom he was physically related, but rather those who would be united to him through the gospel. And I want to offer this as a great encouragement for those of us who have become estranged from our families, often because of the gospel. The gospel does cut a dividing line through many families, sadly. But it does. And it's painful to be a spiritual orphan. It's lonely. But this is one of the many blessings that come from being adopted into Christ's family. When God becomes your father, in a real sense, the church becomes our mother. And we find ourselves among brothers and sisters who share our priorities. And so those who do the will of the father are Christ's brothers and sisters and mother. And because we are adopted as Christians, as Christ's younger brothers and sisters, this means that they are also our family through adoption. And here's Spurgeon again on verse 50. I think this is great. According to our condition and capacity, let us act toward our Lord the part of brother in help, of sister in sympathy, of mother in tender love. For all these relationships act in both ways and involve giving as well as receiving. What a blessing whosoever is this. It is not for ministers only or for persons set apart to special service, but all who do the Father's will in any position of life are encompassed in the family circle of the Lord Christ. You see that? Okay. Even if your Christianity has cost you earthly friends and family, you belong to the household of God and you have many brothers and sisters and mothers by adoption. And this is something that I want to commend this church on for doing well, especially for such a young church. And I want to commend everyone for contributing to this. And it is a bit risky to give examples because invariably I will miss something. So if you feel I have, it's not intentional. But here's a few things that I've seen of this church doing this well, of making a family atmosphere for the people of God. I've seen young couples sacrificing their time in order to help disciple people younger than them. I've seen young men encouraging each other to fight sin 
and to grow in holiness and confronting each other about sin out of love. I've seen a family who is willing to give up a significant piece of their farm property every Sunday for us to gather in. I've seen other members and families offering their basement or their living room or outbuildings in order for church ministries to happen there. I've seen two ladies' studies groups, morning and evening, studying the great Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. I've also been part of a basement full of men having meaningful and serious conversations about the things of the Lord and about spurring each other on to lead our families or our future families well. And last week, I saw either the youngest or one of the youngest guys there sitting and visiting with the oldest man there after we were done our discussion. That's what Jesus has in mind here. I've seen a large group of us coming to Sunday school and taking part in serious discussions about biblical doctrine. Often when we go behind the curtain here to pray before the service, we express thanks and gratitude that there's people laughing and visiting and sharing a coffee between church and Sunday school. I know about hospitality over meals and coffee, shared work projects, snowmobile trips, a ladies' retreat. And last Sunday, I saw three women praying in the back there, and I don't know about what, but I saw it happen. Before the service started. Those are all real examples of what it means to be brothers and sisters and mothers in the family of Jesus Christ. So I want to commend this church. You are doing it well, and I want to encourage you to keep it going. If we come to be known as a church that is deeply reverent for the things of God, deeply committed to the absolute truthfulness of every verse of Scripture, overflowing with love for one another, passionate about inviting the lost to know the Lord, and earnestly seeking holiness in our lives, then we may find ourselves quite amazed at what God can and will be pleased to do through us as we push and crowd out the darkness with the power of a superior love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what your word has shown us this morning. Thank you that your, way, your word has a way of uh, revealing our hearts, showing us the problem that we have, and then providing us with a remedy. Lord, I want to thank you that you have shown us that the best way to fight sin is to not curse the darkness, but to foster and nurture life, to come to you, to fill that spot with a superior love, for you, that sin has no way back in. Lord, and I also want to thank you for uh, your soft and tender words about what it means to be in your family. Lord, even if we experience pain in our natural families, yet, Lord, you knit us together in your spiritual family in the church. And I want to thank you for what is all going right here, for the way people are doing this well, and for the way that your spirit is at work. And Lord, I ask you most earnestly, don't stop. Keep doing it. Do it again, and then do it again. Lord, do not take your spirit from us. Supply us with our needs, and I pray that we would all take uh, our duties to you and to each other earnestly, that we would help prod each other on in faith, in love, and kindness, and good works, that we would crowd the darkness out, that we would foster holiness, and that we would know what it's like to be a warm and loving family dedicated to you as head over all. Please help us, Lord, and thank you.
pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Please stand. Let's make this song our prayer. We've been shown clearly that moral reform, apart from Christ, sets us up for dangerous deception that makes us worse off than when we started. External change leaves us empty and vulnerable to the enemy. And the only way to achieve victory in the long war on sin is to expel it with the superior power of affection for Christ. Christian, if Christ has touched you, then you have eyes to see and a mouth to speak.
The glory of the Lord has filled you to overflowing and you are able to see sin for the irrational corruption that it is. If this is not yet true of you, then if you pray that Christ will open your eyes, he most certainly will do it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and so call out and find peace. This peace finds its most natural expression in the family of God as we follow our older brother in the worship of our father. And then receive the benediction with believing hearts from Colossians 3:15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, and go in peace.